Hey, Clark, how you doing? Good, Hobart. I want to welcome everybody to uh, the second installment of our show and our continued conversations around music. Yeah, this season we're calling it uh, Black Music in White Hands. And the show is called Rambling Through the Brambles. It's really just about us two trying to find a common language. You as an African-American, me as a white guy. You know, one of the things about music is that supposedly it's a universal language. There's an idea that you can transmit the feeling and culture, you know, what they call the zeitgeist, the time and the place, through music. But, uh, you know, a conversation made me wonder if music really belongs to a culture or does it belong to whoever's just listening to it or whoever's making it, whoever's playing it. That's an issue that came up when we talked with uh, Chris Smither, one of America's outstanding singer-songwriters. He's been around since the 60s. And uh, he's a folk musician who comes educated through the uh, blues tradition. Yeah, and it was an interesting time to sit down with him. I enjoyed it. And as always, you have this well of understanding and uh, in the music world. And mine is mostly as an audience member. So it was neat to discover him and understand, you know, realize that he's been around quite a while and he's also from New Orleans, as am I. Yeah, that's sort of important too because uh, the combination of the experience of uh, being a white Southerner from uh, the end, the tail end of segregation, but uh, reaching out uh, to a Black culture. One of the things we talked about, and you'll hear in the interview, is not only his origins in New Orleans, but his uh, self-discovery as a musician. He came out of uh, the folk scene in Boston, a place called Club Passam. And uh, uh, somewhere, you know, some people say Passim, some people say Passam. Uh, and I guess Passim is right. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. I, I, I did some Wikipedia looky loo into it and uh, somewhere I read Passam is the correct pronunciation but yeah. you say Passim I say Passam yeah, it's a great ahead. club it's a famous club it used to be the Club 47 back okay. in the day and you know yeah. a lot of people played there like Jeff Muldaur and Eric Schmidt, uh, Joan Baez and uh, you know all those folks uh, and, and, and as I read it, it also included a lot of the black blues artists were moving through in that East Coast milieu, right? They oh, they were able to play those stages in integrated situations, unlike where they were coming from. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, right. there's there's a whole big scene that uh, uh, happened in the late fifties. You know, John Lomax and those people were sort of uh, promoted it, and and um, there was a clubs in New York and in Boston and San Francisco, Chicago, uh, all sorts of, you know, yeah, uh, I, I neglected and uh, thinking about this to, to give a shout out to the folks in Texas who uh, had clubs like Sand Mountain and uh, later on in the 70s, uh, Anderson Fair, the clubs that, that also tried to do the same thing. So okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't only in the uh, North or the coast, uh, there was a little bit happening in the urban south as uh, well. But it definitely drew him to Club 47, as he points out in there, and he tells us all about that. And that was interesting. So obviously he, he wanted to get out of New Orleans and head to that club in particular. 
Absolutely. And, and uh, one of the clubs that came up uh, in that same era, or slightly later, is uh, the Focal Point, where we had the opportunity to talk to them. Uh, right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Focal Point? Yeah, so the Focal Point's in Maplewood, Missouri, and I volunteer there. It's an all-volunteer operation, but an incredible venue, open since 1975, and Chris Smither is absolutely one of the favorites of that club, and he comes through on a regular basis, and for this day when we got to talk to him, he had two shows, both sold out, so fantastic, and we got a chance to talk to him in the basement there Yeah, the Focal Point. Yeah, near St. Louis, right? Maplewood, Missouri. Yeah. And uh, so why don't we go ahead and listen to a little bit of that interview. Chris Smither here on Rambling Through the Brambles. So we got together because we realized we were really good friends and we had all this, you know, relationship, but we, but we never realized that uh, uh, there might have been an undertone of relationship uh, issue about being uh, black and white and mm-hmm. whether or not uh, that mattered or didn't matter. Or not. I grew up middle class and in the north with a strong civil rights family. He grew up in the south uh, and, and we were talking about like, like, uh, when Kennedy was shot, it was like not like a big deal, and you, you know, well, describe, you know, yeah, exactly. Whereas to me, it was like the the, the the most cataclysmic event. So that that helped us understand that there are these different backgrounds and experiences. Oh, I'm, I'm so familiar with that because, you know, it was it was a big deal to me, for instance, when Kennedy was shot, and it was. A big deal to my folks. My folks were, you know, died in the wool, cast iron liberals and living in New Orleans. I mean, they were originally from Kansas, which is not that liberalist <laughs> either, you know. But, you know, I remember being absolutely astounded that day at Tulane. They had a football game scheduled and they went right ahead and played. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, oh yeah, president got shot. Well, hell with him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we 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 consider like the uh, differences or the the different experiences, sort of like the brambles of life, and we uh, we call the podcast "Rambling Through the Brambles." Yeah, and um, one of the brambles in uh, this discussion is cultural um, appropriation slash cultural appreciation mm-hmm. how it works. But I, I have an interesting question that relates to, to your experience. Yeah. Because New Orleans is not exactly uh, typical. Uh, typical. Right, exactly. <laughs> New Orleans is, 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 I consider it like the Black Paris, right? Uh, yeah. the, the, the cultural center. So uh, is, it, is it fair to say that, that New Orleans, uh, the, the, the Black and White experience is, is more... Uh, more nuanced? And, and, and when you look at the music and <laughs> your own experience, uh, uh, does it feel like uh, uh, like you're borrowing a culture, or, or does it feel like this is just your? Well, I don't know. That's an interesting question. You know, like I've always wondered. I used to wonder when people first started talking about you know cultural appropriation, and I was living in Boston by that time, you know, and I'm going to myself, well, how do they feel about Sergio Zawa? In the Boston Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Here he is. Here he is appropriating white people's music. 
a Japanese. <laughs> to my mind, in the, as far as music goes, that, uh, for instance, like everything that I do, my first love was blues. It was, it was uh, you know, deep country blues, Delta blues, and Texas blues. And, and all my heroes were white people. When did it hit you? Uh, let's see. I, when I was, uh, I was 17, I went to Mexico City to go to school, my first year of school. And my roommate was from Texas, from, uh, and he was from College Station, Texas. And he, and he was interested in the fact that I played the guitar. And he said, you should listen to this guy. And he gave me this Lightning Hopkins. Yeah, it's always Lightning. <laughs> it's always Lightning. Oh, Lightning. Wow. That's really interesting, this business about Seiji Ozawa, you know? Clark, Seiji Ozawa was a big deal when he came over from Japan. Uh, he came over to conduct the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And there hadn't been a non-white conductor of a major symphony orchestra, I believe. And it's interesting to see that the Smither used him as an example of how this cultural appreciation. Appreciation both on uh, the part of an audience and appreciation on the part of the artist as well for European music. It, yeah, but it felt like he was uh, using that as an example to push back at the whole notion that music belongs to a culture. Yeah, and, and I noticed that he bristled somewhat at the assertion of your question of cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation. Uh, I think in his mind, having been playing for all these years and long ago worked his way through, you know, which is which, he's a songwriter, not necessarily a song interpreter is the way I'm thinking about it. I mean, his goal as a musician is to write a fresh new song using the influences of, of the masters that he spent a lifetime learning and performing. So, you know, we're going to get a chance to play some Lightning Hopkins, and he talked about Mississippi John Hurt. And, you know, when I was talking to him, I wanted him to kind of explain what it feels like to imbue himself with this music, to just, you know, what, what's, it, what's it feel down in his soul to play it? Because, you know, that's where the fascination lies for me. It's somewhere inside, because he's hearing the music, you know, at 17, right? And he gets blown away by this music, and he realized that's all he's ever going to do for the rest of his life, 60 yeah. years ago. And, you know, he's going to play this type of music where he goes. He just learns how Lightning Hopkins plays the guitar, and he learns how Mississippi John Hurt is able to get that sound. And, I mean, that's cultural appreciation, obviously. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, and and, and uh, he was right to push back maybe because um, musicians don't assume cultural appropriation. I mean, really good ones. It's more than that. It's a, a personal connection. It was useful for me. It made me rethink the whole premise of the question that I've been asking whether or not there's a little racism in the assumption that music ultimately only belongs to one group, or uh, whether or not there's a certain selfishness and the assumption that it's not constantly malleable and changeable. Because let's face it, music is a, a bunch of notes and a bunch of rhythms, and, and, and uh, sometimes you can certainly point to uh, a culture where it emanated from, but once it's there, once it's music, you know, it's music. Yeah, uh, I think you know, we can go keep going around on this, but... Um... Basically, uh, 
you know, I think we should just get back to this interview. And I think maybe we'll want to listen to a little bit of the music that inspired him. So that the audience can get a, an appreciation for what he heard when he was a young man. Yeah, we got the Lightning Hopkins queued up here. And let's take a listen. And, and this is interesting because Lightning Hopkins is a blues singer. But he's singing about Abilene, Texas, which is about the whitest part of that state. <laughs> Cultural appreciation of Lightning Hopkins. All right. Well, then uh, let's play that. And then on the other side of that, we'll have more music and more interviews with Chris Smither at Focal Point in Maplewood, Missouri.
And to me, it was like transformative. And I said, what is this? You know, he said, this is, this is like real blues, man. And, and, uh, and, and I sat there and I listened to it and I didn't know blues. I didn't know it. I knew the word, but I didn't know any of the musical connotations that associated with it or any of the definitions. All I knew was what I was listening to was one guy on one guitar and it sounded like rock and roll. And I wanted that. Right, right. <laughs> well, I wanted that. And, I mean, I didn't realize how right I was because that's the roots of rock and roll, right? There. I mean, you're looking at it right there. And so, you know, I went to, I went to town on it. I started looking at everything I could find about it. You know, and it wasn't that easy in those days, you know. But my next big love was, was, was a whole different aspect of that music, which was Mississippi John Hurt. But... You know, I could, because Lightning played that dead thumb, uh, Texas, you know, blues, yeah. you know, with, right. with that. but, um, John Hurt was into syncopated finger picking, you know, alternating thumb and, and that whole thing. And I said, how's he doing that, you know? And then I found out how he's doing that. I made my business to find out. And, uh, you know, and then that again was transformative. And, uh, but you know the the whole question of, of cultural appropriation never occurred to me, and in my experience, even to this day, it's something that never comes up between musicians. It's always people who aren't musicians who are talking about it. Musicians don't give a shit. Right, right. They they don't care. You know, if you're doing it well, then they're all for it. You know. And 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 if you're not doing it well, they don't care if you're white, black, red, or brown, or in between yellow. Don't do it. Right. right. <laughs> you know. And so, what what do we do with people who don't do it well but who are successful? Well, if they're successful, they're doing something well. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the marketing of the minstrel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's either you know, it's performance, a successful performance. I mean. I'm hard pressed to think of somebody who does it, who who's really bad, who's really mm-hmm. successful. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, it depends on your definition of success too. You know, mm-hmm. but that applies to everything. I mean, you know, why is Tiger Woods playing golf? That's a white man's game. <laughs> right, but right, nobody right. begrudges him that. Mm-hmm. No, because mm-hmm. he was the best. There's no golfers going around saying, "What's a black man doing playing golf?" Appropriating my culture like that, yeah. Although I guess it was when when, when Ash started coming up, there was, he he faced a little bit of that in tennis in the beginning. But yeah. it wasn't because it was tennis; it was because he was black. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it had nothing to do with the fact that tennis was a white man's game. Not really. I mean, it had nothing to do with cultural appropriation. It was. Right, it was, right, it was right. He wasn't the first black successful tennis player. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting that he kind of had his pushback with you on this argument about cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation. And having played uh, the blues as an artist for 70 years, he's probably been asked this question more times than he cares to think about it. And so, you know, his go-to argument, his analogy is, what about Tiger Woods? Tiger Woods plays golf. It's a white man's game. Nobody accused him of cultural appropriation for playing golf. Um, you countered, of course, with um, with the Arthur Ashe uh, mention, which, again, he said, well, it's not about that was because he was black. 
right? So he's he's understanding racism is integral to uh, the politics, the political life, and the cultural life of of Americans, um, but that it shouldn't. It, it's racial, period. Right, right, right. The, the, it, shouldn't, it, it doesn't mean that uh, um, uh, a person, an artist of whatever race, is is limited to uh, uh, the the tradition of 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 that race, uh, and and so. Uh, Tiger right. Woods should and, be able to play golf, and that the racism that Arthur Ashe faced, uh, uh, Arthur Ashe also should be able to play tennis. And the pushback that he got is is, is like us pushing back uh, gently on him on on his influence on on the Blues. It was it was a it was a, a great jujitsu. Yes, uh, it was. Uh, yeah, pre- and and he well understands where he comes from and to, of what he speaks, because as he points out. Before or after this part in the interview, um, you know, he, he writes about he talked about uh, um, having to leave New Orleans and and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, he, because uh, playing acoustic blues was uh, uh, not something that was uh, being appreciated in, in popular culture and in, in the South at the time. Sort of right. ironic. I mean, maybe in the backwoods, maybe in the Mississippi Delta, but certainly not in the urban centers. Uh, sure. at, at that time in the 60s, uh, acoustic blues was listened to primarily by white audiences, upper middle class black audiences, and on the coast, you know, in New yeah. York and in Boston and California. Los Angeles and San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah. yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, and as I discovered, just looking at, at a cursory look at New Orleans, New Orleans at the time was rhythm and blues. They had already moved blues into something new. So uh, when we uh, go back uh, into the court, into our interview, um, we're going to uh, hear him talk a little bit about uh, his experience playing uh, acoustic blues and being around the acoustic blues players at uh, Club Passim or Passim, uh, yeah. Club 47, as it's also known. Uh, and that's where you'd hear uh, Jeff Moldar and some of the other folks Eric von Schmidt, some of the other interpreters of uh, of uh, of uh, blues, as well as the original progenitors like uh, Lightning and um, um, and Mississippi John, who, who were, according to what I've read, uh, allowed to play there, of course, but couldn't stay at the local hotels, even in yeah, Cambridge, we, Massachusetts. No, that's so, story, don't we? So, yeah, so, yeah, but the north as well as the south. Yes, there's, yeah. there's black reporters at problem. So. But 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 integrated audiences was still a thing, a big deal in in uh, in the early '60s. It's just that on the East Coast, through people like John Hammond and Club Forty Seven, they they integrated their performers right. performances. So, all right. Well, why don't we uh, go back into it? Yeah. You left New Orleans when you were how twenty. Oh, oh twenty. Well, you just and and where'd you head off to after that? I went to Boston. Okay. Well, by way of New York, and I mean, I just went up the whole East Coast. But my my goal was to go to Boston because you know my goal was to was to get to the Club Forty Seven in mm-hmm. Cambridge, and and that's where that's where all the song singer songwriters were playing, and that's what I wanted to do. Cool. Cool. Right. And, and I guess you knew Jeff back, Jeff Moldar, and oh, I met all those people. Right. Yeah. Right. Jeffrey was one of the first people I ever met. 
One of the things that we, we talk a lot about is the, the, the mix of performance styles. How, how, you know, how do you, how do you find the way in which you, you, you keep things yourself, but also have a sense of, of uh, the history or the, the culture? Is that a conscious thing? Or? I am the product of my influences, you know, and they show. Uh, you know, mm. I try hard to, every time that I, like when I write a new batch of songs or start a new pro- recording project or something like that, I always hope that there's something a little bit new in there. For me, I don't mean new in the world. I mean new for me. Right, right. You know? But my approach to it is is shaped by everything that came before. I can't avoid it. <laughs> you know. When you go into the guitar, when you're playing, hmm. and you're, and well, how does it feel? Do you do you when you get a, a song like we're talking about, like a Missive John Hurt song or something uh-huh. that's that you've learned and yeah. are doing honor to? What does it feel like to get into that song while you're playing? I'm always fascinated by that. Well, it feels natural. You know, if it doesn't feel natural, I don't do it. <laughs> you know, but I, you know, because there's something that made me gravitate to that tune in the first place. I'm not sure how I would, I would define that, but. You know, in the case of John Hurt, there's this a totally engaging sense of of, of rolling rhythm. You know? It's not overstated. It's not it's not bam in your face, but it's compelling. You know, it's just it's like it's a soft kind of belt buckle music. It's just you know, like you're moving from the center of your body when you hear it. You know, and it's it's got a lilt to it, but there's there's nothing light about it. You know, it feels heavy, but it lilts at the same time. It's like watching, it's almost as if you could watch an elephant canter. So there's weight to it, but at the same time, it's light on his feet. You know, I, I you know, that's just, that's just John Hurt. I mean, you know, when they get, now you get into something like what lightning does, and it's just, boom, boom, it's like, so it is a, it's basically kinesthetic. It's basically a body feel. And a, yeah, this is just a, you know, and it just feels right, you know. And, and I've never, I don't think I've sat down to try to determine why it sounds right. Yeah. It's just like, I, you know, I think my attitude is if you can't hear it, I'm never going to be able to explain it to you. Yeah, yeah all that's fascinating him, you know taking himself to Cambridge, uh, getting out of the South so he could be more Southern in a way. <laughs> and uh, interesting. So I I play, I dabble with a guitar. I, as somebody asked, do you own a guitar? Yes, I own a guitar. That's how much I play the guitar. So, but I, I enjoyed it, getting into it. And one of the things that happens when you're playing a musical instrument, I think, is that you kind of get into your own head and your own heart and body of when you're playing it because the music that you're making uh is just i'm just fascinated by the emotional attachment to it so i wanted to ask him about his own experience with this deep understanding and uh, of this music and what drives him and what it's like for him to perform a song and and i say this because it's germane to our larger question about appropriation appreciation and etc especially around music is that, you know, feelings, you know, what's what's more important than how you feel as a human being 
when you're experiencing a thing and this goes to food and everything right so but in music especially so i i believe and we have to allow for an audience to exist without being feeling like it's somehow uh peeking through the window in a wrong way yeah i know what you mean i know exactly what you mean and uh that's part of the question uh when i was asking him about uh uh whether or not the influences show um uh, whether or not they're just like all so mixed in there that that they just sort of come out as you expressed but uh you can only find it out afterwards in the listening in the in the uh, uh, in, in the reflective period not in the performance period uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh he he uh, he says uh, uh, he doesn't know he says uh, it's not a conscious thing um and uh uh that's that's uh, that's maybe something that uh, we don't pay enough attention to when we talk about issues of culture uh some of this stuff is uh just uh so ineffable yeah yeah i like that word uh because uh, it's one of those ones that you expect to see like on selling uh, yeah. <laughs> and can you be effable <laughs> One of the things, one of the things that uh, uh, he talks about is uh, this business of uh, uh, belt, so, belt, soft kind of belt buckle music. Yes, yeah, uh, this is what I, this is when I was glad I would ask the question. At first, you know, yes, sometimes I ask this question: Does it sound stupid? Does it sound, mm-hmm. you know, ridiculous? But when he got into the belt buckle, yeah, his belt buckle comment, I, I felt yeah. like okay, that, that's the kind of stuff I want to know. Yeah, it's moving from the center of your body, he says. Uh, uh, you hear it, you, it's got a little to it, but there's nothing light about it. It feels heavy. Uh, mm-hmm. So, that, you know, I guess Mississippi John Hurt, who we talked about as an influence, uh, uh, has, a, has you know, attracted audiences, uh, white and black, because there was a, 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 a candor, but also a gentleness. Uh, candy man, salty dog. You know, I mean, that was that was a uh, uh, sort of like the the yin and yang uh, of, of Mississippi John Hurt. And uh, I think why don't we listen to a little bit of uh, John Hurt here, so we can get the feel of how that music passes through the experience and the writing of uh, Chris Miller. How can it be you can rest everybody but cruel Stagley, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. There's the line told Stagley, please don't take my life. I got two little babes and a darling loving wife, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. What I care about, you two little babes and a darling loving wife, 
You done stole my stuff and head I'm bound to take your life That bad man Oh, cruel Stanley living it but while you're in it you're talking about writing a hideous no uh, well either either or playing or writing well depends on you know once you've gotten in once you've learned the tune then in the back of your mind there is a picture of the whole of the whole but you are only within a you're, you're only in a in a, a moving moment within that whole as you do it, you know, but to me, it's not a, it doesn't have anything to do with, okay, I'm at point A and I got to get to point B and I, you know, it's just a, it's just like a moving thing. Okay. You know, and, and you're, you're taking it for the ride, you know, it's like a car, you know, you're driving the car, but, it, it, but at the same time, you don't really have a sense of, okay. I started in New Orleans. I'm gonna wind up in Memphis, <laughs> but here I am, and now I'm this. You know, you know. You, I mean, you could think about it that way, but most of the time, while you're driving your car, you're just looking out the window. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. right. You know, just digging what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's basically. and do you choose a song when, when you decide to do a song, write it or perform it? Is it one that? Maybe this is too simple a way to even say it, but it's one that obviously drives you right. It get gets gets to you and you want to so when you're tied in, to the moment like, like tied to like what's going on right now in your life in the world. not necessarily mm-hmm. no okay so that was our interview with this fantastic musician um just felt lucky to be able to talk to somebody that whose whose career moves across that many decades yeah, and he's still vibrant as up vibrant and, and alive and aware uh cognizant um and one of the things that that that, that, that struck me is that uh, he's been having to address or deal with uh, on some level uh the intersection of his own personal experience 
and there's influences from um, black culture, uh, but how those influences from black culture are ultimately uh, American experiences and, uh, and how he reaches through that to the individuals, uh, uh, Lightning or Mississippi, John Hurd or, or any uh, other artist who, who is uh, sharing their own take on the universal emotions and experiences. Yeah, and, and, and to put a, a, a final point on it for him was he says, you know, what I tell young people is just don't do anything else. So in, informed that informed me about his own dedication to the art form that he has chosen as his path as a songwriter. You know, he didn't start one thing and then end in another. He, he found his he found his place. Right. And then, you know, this business of this wonderful line, uh, he said, I love the blues form as a vehicle. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not that uh, uh, he has the, the same experiences, but that it's, it's, a, it's another vessel for carrying the liquor of his experience. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, the bottle may have a certain shape. But what's in it is, uh, can be uh, Crim de Mint or Jack Daniels. Yeah. Well, I sure enjoyed his cocktail. Yeah. <laughs>